0: The woman appeared with the first light, struggling across the dunes, a figure from the revelation. he saw her from the beach. There was a pack of feral dogs loose in the valley, and he had been hunting them for the better part of three days, without success. To complicate matters, he had attempted to work behind a little crystal meth, and it had left him in a bad place. He supposed that buying in the parking lot of the Palm Avenue 7-Eleven from a kid with a head shaped like a peanut and a hoop through his nose had not been the best of ideas.
1: Kem Nunn's first novel, Tapping the Source, was nominated for a National Book Award. His latest novel is Tijuana Straits, and it explores the landscapes and personalities at the edge of the continent and along the borders of our nation. Welcome to the show, Kem. Thanks for having me. Kem, your work really evokes landscapes. You work from landscapes. Could you tell us how you find these landscapes, how you limit them? How do you work with them and bring them from prose and then... Grow from them the personalities and the characters you create.
0: Well, I can. I guess I can tell you how I found this one. <laughs> I was. Um, I'd gotten interested in the border. Uh, I'd been reading some of those, some of the stuff to come out of Orez. You know, the murdered factory girls there. Uh, got interested in some of the border issues with the Maquiladoras. So I decided to go look at my border, which is the at, at Tijuana, uh, the one closest to me. And I had remembered Imperial Beach from when I was a, a kid going down there to surf. So just hadn't seen it in years. Drove down one day to Imperial Beach and walked out on the the dunes that run along the sloughs For if you look one way you see the Tijuana Bullring and if you look the other way you see the hills of Point Loma. So it's one of those places where you really feel between the worlds. And then you also look out, if you look east, you look across this this quite literal, no man's land between the gates of these two cities. And so that struck me as being a very interesting kind of landscape. It was, um, it kind of jived for me with a quotation from a a book by Foucault that I had read uh, called Madness and Civilization, where he talks about these dead zones at the gates of the city. And so I felt like that in, in finding the Tijuana River Valley I had found my my literal dead zone at the gate of the city. It was a way of talking, saying something about the border, and then I discovered that there was all this interesting surf lore connected to the river valley and to the, to the surf spot where the river Tijuana River empties into the sea. So I, all of those things, there were a number of things that all kind of came together for me, in that little corner of the state. So I began to explore it.
1: Could you tell us a little bit about the Doris, what they are, and what your research was and how you found out ab- about them.
0: Well, the um, they're foreign-owned factories. Americans, Japanese, Canadians, lots of different different uh, national groups own these factories. They go to you know, they're they're, they're factories that are looking for cheap labor. Um, that was what drew them to Mexico. Uh, you find them in all the border towns, Juarez, T- uh, Tijuana, uh, Mexicali. Uh, you know and 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 some they go some ways down into the interior but they're 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 just they're factories they make all kinds of stuff a lot of there's a lot of electronics stuff um uh there's um you know some of them make furniture uh some of them make you know miss piggy dolls i mean it's just you know they really kind of make make everything
1: but there's no environmental controls and that really leads to Create a very bleak landscape. Did you actually walk through some of these uh, places you described?
0: Yeah, yes, I did. I spent a fair amount of time in Tijuana, uh, in the factory district. Um, spent some time with some of the women there. They're trying to get some of the some one, one thing that happens among these factories is that if someone the 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 law the environmental laws are on the books in Mexico, they're just not enforced. People tend to look the other way because they want to be friendly to business. They don't want. They don't want it to be seen as a place where you come to, you know, to get sued. Uh, but if somebody gets in a little bit of trouble, uh, it's easy to just declare bankruptcy in Mexico and and just walk away, walk away from 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 whatever they've been doing. Um, so I spent some time with with some of the women. that were they were one of their projects was cleaning up a big battery recycling factory that had just been deserted. So there was just all kinds of lead, you know, sitting around leaching into the ground. Um, another thing that I did, um, I went down to San Antonio, Texas, uh, for a hearing. Um, some policy arm of NAFTA was having a hearing there and they had invited, there were like maybe 20 Maquiladora workers from Matamoros who had come up to tell their stories. So it was a way of hearing, um, a lot of people talk about the conditions they had worked
1: in. Could you describe for us some of the kinds of toxic pollution and the effects that this pollution has on the inhabitants. It's a big part of the novel. It, it leeches up out of the ground into the characters, literally.
0: Yeah, well, it depends. You know, some factories are worse than others. It depends on what kind of factory that you work in. But some of the people from Matamoros that I spent time with had worked in in um, uh, factories where they, you know, put leather on steering wheels um, gear shift knobs. So when you do something like that, you're working with a lot of uh, solvents, a lot of glues. Uh, these things tend to sit around on tables in big open containers. Um, there's usually very there's poor ventilation in many of the factories. So if you happen to be in a factory like that, you're probably going to start having respiratory problems. Um, there was one guy down there that even talked about becoming addicted to some of these um uh, substances um which is something that found its way into the book, but it's uh one of my favorite photographs. I spent some time with an attorney in Tijuana, and she had a photograph of a young woman who had been overcome by fumes in one of the factories, and there were a couple of guys that had come in to you know take her away, and they were wearing you know like space suits you know the the toxic uh you know the toxic protection suits. And there's a photograph of this young Mexican woman in the arms of these two guys. They're, they're completely covered. You know, I mean, cl- clearly they know this is a really toxic environment. Um, you know, they're not probably going to do anything to clean it up, but they've come in to, you know, get this woman out.
1: So on one side of the border, we have a toxic wasteland where workers work for m- below minimal wages. mm mm-hmm. Describe the other side of the border, uh, the Tijuana River Valley, in in particular, Garage Door Tijuana.
0: Well, in in uh, Mexico, the the Tijuana River Valley, um, the the fence, the border fence, kind of cuts through the heart of the valley. So about two thirds of the valley is in Mexico, about another third is in the states part that's in Mexico has been quite developed. That's the zona Rio that you drive into when you go through the border crossing at San Ysidro. Um, there were plans to develop the, um, the American side, but that never was a number of environmentalists got together and and blocked that because it's a, there's a great saltwater estuary there. It's, um, there's a lot of migratory birds come there. So they were, they were able to, um, to stop the plans for, for developing it. So what you have now is this basically open country, um, uh, a lot of sandbar willows, reeds, marshy. It's a marshy area. The, much of it's marshy. The Tijuana River flows through it. Um, but it's it's a kind of, you know, it's a kind of no-man's land. There's a few little truck farmers that... that uh, that work the ground down in there. But there's a lot of, um, you know, there's still lots of drug running, you know, people running <laughs> uh, that that goes on, you know, in that valley, especially when the sun goes down. So it's still kind of a wild, It's you know, it's a little like something out of the Wild West.
1: Could you describe uh, Garage Door de Tijuana?
0: Garage Door Tijuana is that there's an enclave of of what I, what I understand to be Oaxacan Indians that that live down there it's a it's it's a community that's kind of grown up around some stables, but it's a pretty uh, you know crazy place it's they, they call it garage door Tijuana because it's uh, fenced off with with big garage doors, which are a favorite um you know build a, s- a staple of- bu- a <laughs> of building in, in Tijuana one itself and in this case they've used the garage doors to kind of fence this fence off this whole area uh inside their you know there there are stables of horses being boarded there, and people living there
1: you your writing in this book really borders on hallucinogenic, and you have a number of characters who are addicted to various forms of drugs. Could you talk about how you use the prose to evoke both the landscape and the characters?
0: um I'm not sure that I can. <laughs> Huh. I mean, that's what I, you know, you just try it. I mean, I, I I have to, when I write, I have to try and make the language interesting for myself. Mm-hmm. I have to have a certain engagement. when I, Either when I read or when I write, I have to have a certain, there has to be a certain engagement with the language for me or I, I kind of lose interest, whether I'm reading someone else's work or writing my own. So I, so I try to, I mean, after all, language is what you paint with when you're writing. And so I... Uh, you know that's just it's a i enjoy immersing myself in it and and trying to take myself to another place
1: as a lingual, lingual painter i would say you're a surrealist
0: well yeah i mean this is that's a kind it's a, it's a sort of surreal landscape but then i tend to be drawn to surreal landscapes i think oh uh, I mean we all the one might say that we're surrounded by surreal landscapes
1: sure now You're also very much an American writer and this novel fits very much into a tradition of American writing. Reaching back from the hallucinogenic works of Flannery O'Connor and up through your own work, could you talk about yourself in terms of being an American writer? Do you think about that or does it just come from living here?
0: I think it comes from living here. I I, I tend not to think about that. I I, I tend to, I think one thing you look for when you write in a way you look for for access to your own experience you know that's part of what makes writing an interesting enterprise is that you you both ex- you explore the world and you explore yourself at the same time you're always in a way looking for looking for um a landscape that, that that can that can become a kind of existential landscape a way of a landscape that in some way mirrors you know your own experience so um I think that it's for me, it's, it's it's very personal. I don't think of myself as being an American writer or a Californian writer, although, you know, all of my books have been set in California. I mainly think about just, I mean, Kundera has a great line somewhere about writers being explorers of existence, you know, and I, I guess that, that I, I like the ring of that.
1: Your novels, all I believe, except with the exception of Unassigned Territory and, well, I guess, Pawana Queen. They deal with surfing. It's an interesting thing to write about because it doesn't, to my mind, perhaps lend itself to writing. Could you tell me why you would write about a, an experience so physical and minimal?
0: Well, surfing has always been a part of my life. It's something that, for me, it's always been a way of communing with nature, a way of, you know, feeling some of the energy of nature. Um, and when you start thinking about, how you inter- interact with nature personally, you, you also think about how we interact with nature as a culture. And so surfing, for me, begins to serve as a, as a kind of metaphor. There's something metaphorical there about how we, you think about how we interact with nature, you think about how we've treated nature, what's going on with nature, what's going on with our relationship with nature. It's a, Surfing's kind of a way into that for me.
1: This fits in with your idea. With your interest in the landscape, of, yeah, of yeah, it does becoming part of the landscape, mm-hmm. a, a way of moving through the landscape. One of the most interesting characters in your new novel is Armando. Mm-hmm. I I found him to be really fascinating. Could you describe him to a, our listeners and, and maybe tell talk about how he grows out of the landscape of the Doris and also. As an example of your interest in evil, you have a, uh, an interest in evil, don't you?
0: <laughs> I don't know, I've been accused of that. <laughs> I'm not. It's another one of those things. I'm not. I'm quite sure what to say about it. Um, other than I, I, you know, I be, I think there is, the, you know, good and evil do exist in the world. I'm mean, a bit of a Manichaean Gnostic, I guess. The, man, the Manichaean Gnostics, you know, believed in the two co-eternal principles of light and dark, and that these two. had you know we're forever at war with one another and i think you know there is good and evil in, in the world and you know you can paint that in, in broad strokes but um in terms of of armando uh you know i, I just i, I wanted I, I was very moved by some of the uh testimony i heard when he was when i was down in san antonio uh some of these people have really sad stories to tell and so i, I, I I began to to think that I wanted the that this that this character he's he's a villain but he's not so much a villain of his own creation in a way he's a he's a product of this of this um of this toxic environment which has been created, you know, for him. And um he's very sympathetic. Yeah, and I, and I wanted the story that that, that he also is uh, that he also that he's tragic. You know, he's a, he's he's tragic, but right. he al- he is also a you know, a villain, and but I, but I wanted that element of of tragedy to exist for him, and I wanted the story without you know giving giving it too much away. Here, I wanted the story that you know his pursuit of Magdalena to to have an ironic
1: dimension to it. You also have a character who is based on the killer of the Juarez women. How much research did you do into that?
0: Well, the the Juarez thing as a whole. La, great labyrinth unto itself but yeah I do there, it, it, there's a little echo of it and in, in w- with one one particular character what what goes on in my book is pretty particular to this one one character it's not right. quite it doesn't sort of lead into this great labyrinth that that Juarez story leads into
1: could you tell us a little bit about that with
0: the Juarez story yeah well, there a lot's been written about it. It's they, you know, I think Frontline did a piece on television about it. It's you know, it's since I, I forget the date, but in the last four or five years, there's been you know two or three hundred women that have been murdered there. Still, just it's unsolved. No one knows quite what's going on. I mean, there've also been a lot of men that have been murdered there during the same period of time. Much of that related to to drug running. I mean, a lot has been written about. It. So really, it's a it's, it's a it's a strange, complicated story.
1: Your new novel also is very much a passionate work of environmental fiction, to deal with talk about how we treat the environment and how it treats us back. Could you talk about how you work that into the story and and what you were trying to do with that?
0: I pretty much as as you stated it. I mean, I, I as I said, I've, surfing for me, has always been a way of connecting with the environment, and yet you know you see what's happening in the oceans the you know, the increasing pollution it's uh, i mean we, you know we face that we do face a, an environmental crisis i mean it's it's not like the science is out on it you know the, the science is in and um so it's and you know for for the characters in this story they really are right they're right down there in it you know they really are um living in this toxic environment which is the the product of these factories and so it just it's just a part of that world I was writing about
1: One of the things that intrigues me about your work is that your work has used a series of somewhat hapless heroes You really seem to focus on an everyman undistinguished underachievers How, How do you Create these characters and then keep them compelling to the reader.
0: Um, you yeah, know, th- yeah. Oddly enough, I never really think of them myself as being so. <laughs> I mean, I think all of us as being kind of hapless, you know. I mean, we're, we're all and there's a, again, it g- gets back to this idea of an existential landscape, you know. I mean, we're there's a there's a point, a, pl- pl- a pl- place, a kind of existential place in which we're all up against it, you know. We're all kind of, as, as Clint Eastwood says, "We all got it coming, kid." <laughs> you know and so the idea of of um uh, you know when when creating a, a fictional character again you want to somehow i mean part of what you do when you create stories is you're always trying to say something about life you know you're trying to say when you, you know, there's something meta there's you know plot as metaphor you know you're trying to in telling a particular story you're trying to say something about how you view life and so um for me you know We're all kind of up against it. So to create a character that's up against it in a very particular way for a particular story is a way of mirroring something that I think is more larger and, and universal about the human condition.
1: You also work consistently in literary crime fiction, and this is a fiction that has a long and distinguished history, again from Dostoevsky, straight up to you. Can you tell me a little bit about your interest in crime fiction? And
0: you know, I I, I really don't have much interest in crime fiction. Um, you know, my books certainly get. Well, it, you know, my, the I mean people have sometimes have a hard time sort of figuring out, you know, where to put the books on the shelves.
1: I can imagine why.
0: Um, which is which, in a way, is okay with with me. Um, you know, it may it may hurt sales. But, uh, um, yeah, I I never really set out, I never set out to write um, crime fiction, and yet, and I I don't think it, I mean, it's certainly not procedural stuff, I tend not to have, you know, cops or detectives, but there often is some, you know, something that's happened that, or some element of mystery, but that kind of gets back to this idea of pl- plot mirroring life in some way. I mean, there's an element of mystery in our, in life and in everyone's life, you know.
1: Now, one of my favorite novels of yours is Unassigned Territory. Mm-hmm. I really enjoyed it. It's it's a little more antic and humorous, I think, than some of your other work. Could you talk a little bit about that? I any novel that has a bathroom with graffiti in it that has Cthulhu is a novel that <laughs> I'm really going to enjoy.
0: <laughs> yeah, I I don't know what I can say about that book. Um, I mean, I I kind of I get I, it's one of you know I think when I look back that was my second book and in an odd way when I look back at that book, um, you know I tend you know you tend not to go back to your old work too much because you just start saying things you want to fix. But um, I think I kind of first heard my voice in that book in a way that I didn't. Maybe even in in the first book, tapping the source, unassigned territory is kind of more wide open and kind of crazy. It was, but I, but I heard when I look at it now, I kind of hear the sound of my my voice in a way that I didn't in that first book. If that makes any sense, mm-hmm. um, yeah, I wanted it to in a way I wanted it to be a book about how people look for meaning in their lives and ultimately, where that meaning comes from.
1: Could you talk a little bit about how you write?
0: Oh, I tend to work. I try to work each day. Um, usually I try to get up in the morning, you know, get a little exercise, maybe go down to the beach or something, and then I come home and try to work, work for a couple hours, two, three hours, knock off for lunch, try to come back and work a little more at the end of the day.
1: Do your novels are they are they outlined? Do they are they just come from some organic place within you?
0: No, I usually don't outline. I usually just start writing. Uh, I mean, I go through a lot of drafts, mm-hmm. but I just I,
1: I I tend not to outline. As a novelist, you're you're not like the normal novelist who pops out a novel every year. <laughs> could you talk a little bit about that and and how that affects you as a writer and what kind of pressures you get maybe from your agents your publishers
0: yeah they usually um, they are usually after me to try and and do more but it but i i guess i work rather slowly and then i um you know i do other thi- i mean i've i i've also done uh some script writing which is and is that kind of how i bankroll my novel habit so um when what, what uh, scripts have you written Uh, The one that I worked on that got made was a movie called Wild Things. Okay. Matt Dillon, Kevin Bacon, Bill Uh Murray. Worked on that. Um, Didn't get a credit on it, but I I did a lot of work on it. Um, I've worked on a number of scripts. I mean, I've worked on on the script for Dogs of Winter. I don't know what will will come of that, but I worked on the script. Um, I actually did an adaptation of Unassigned Territory once. A guy named Kerry Brokaw, who had a little company called Avenue, it was right. He, he made, he made Drugstore Cowboy, you know, the old Matt Dillon movie. Right, right. Yeah, well, I really thought we had maybe had a chance with that, but then he ran He ran out of money. Avenue ran out of money before we could uh, get any f- further with it. See, I've always thought that book should, if you could do that as a film, like an in, an in, a little indie kind of film, that it should look like a, one of those 1950s sci fi movies. Right, right. I Repo yeah. Man. <laughs> yeah.
1: uh, was. Uh, was tapping the source ever,
0: optioned? Yeah, it was actually purchased by uh, Universal. They f- apparently to prevent anyone else from ever making it.
1: Because I I had heard that it had been written and rewritten into complete oblivion and unrecognizability. <laughs> yeah, I've heard that same. I've heard the same thing.
0: But it there it sits. They've owned it for all these years now.
1: And one thing that also interests me about your work, getting back to that, is. Your interest, your novels kind of verge on evoke the numinous and the supernatural. Is that something you do on purpose? Is that something uh, an effect you're stretching for? Are you interested in that?
0: Well, yeah, I'm. I'm, I'm, Yeah, I mean, that's again, you know, just back to that idea of plots that mirror something you believe to be true, you know, about the human condition. I mean, I think we all. Um I say we we all may maybe that's not true i I certainly feel that I wrestle with some of these questions and some of these issues, and so they're you know they they come kind of quite naturally find their way into the work.
1: Could you tell us a little bit about also your interest in the borders? There are borders all over your latest novel, between the land and the sea, between America and Mexico.
0: Yeah, I don't know if I could, I don't know what to say about it in a general way. I mean, in a specific way, I, you know, as we've, we've talked about, I got interested in in um, just what was going on on the border environmentally and culturally. And so was drawn to that, you know, to that line between uh, Mexico and California. Um, as, for the o- as for the other borders, I understand what you're, kind of what you're getting at. I don't know that I
1: know what I would say about that it's not something that you deliberately seek it just happens
0: yeah again i mean i uh, uh, yeah I, t- I tend not to you know i, I, t- I tr- again trying to create plots that are somehow true to my own experience and and, mm-hmm. and, and 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 that's what i think about trying to trying to make stuff you know have for me a kind of ring of truth as opposed to to thinking so much about to thinking thematically in the in the way that you're suggesting that uh, I mean it's that's the kind of stuff you kinda of think of later. That you, you discover know? in your work after yeah, you read y- it. You discover it in your work or sometimes somebody else discovers it in your work and then you go, Oh yeah, you know, that's <laughs> okay, I see that now. I didn't but it's not something that um I, I would think of while I was while I was writing it.
1: As these novels evolve from your experience then, you're putting yourself in your character's shoes one after another. Oh yeah, yeah, very much so. So for example how how do you put yourself in the place of somebody like Armando, who's evil, yeah, th- or, th- or who who's th- afflicted?
0: Mm-hmm. Well, again, I think we're all afflicted, you know. <laughs> <laughs> so maybe you have to kind of get into that part of yourself. Um, I also, it's you know, in a way, the, the, this book I think, and you, you mentioned that it's hallucinogenic in places. I, I I think it has a kind of elevated kind of language. That may in in and, and you know throughout big pieces of it and some of that just the the language for me a certain kind of language uh, was a way of getting you know connecting with Armando uh you know trying to connect with him through through that language
1: you talked a lot about rewriting H- how do you go about that and do you read it to yourself do you have readers first uh, readers?
0: Um, I usually work on something on my own for a while. I mean, I try to get through a draft and then do some, you know, then I go back. and I am mean, I'm constantly writing and rewriting. And, um, you know, eventually it's, uh, yeah, I get to a point where I, I want somebody else to read it and
1: tell me what they think. We've been talking with Kem Nunn. His latest novel is Tijuana Straits. Thanks for joining us, Kem.
0: Oh, thanks for having me.